Welcome to our second uh, episode of this podcast. We're still undecided on the name for the podcast, so we're just going to leave it as Favor Ministries Reformed Theology for now. But our topic today is going to be about um, Jesus uh, coming like a thief in the night. So it's a quote from Scripture in First Thessalonians five, uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 2. And Paul says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, I guess the first point that we kind of want to go into is about uh, how our days are numbered. So there's a few verses uh, or a few quotes from scripture that we'll go through, not uh, entirely in depth, but to kind of get across the principle that our days are numbered and we have to make a decision about what to do with the time that we have on earth. So I think one of the most popular ones is from James uh, 4 where um, he says, what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So, I mean, do you want to kind of explain a little bit about that verse and what it says about how our days are numbered? Yeah. John Piper wrote a great book called life is vapor that really took that idea and went with it. And what he's saying is just like in the morning, you know, around here we have dew in the morning. And then as the sun comes up, you start seeing a little bit of that vapor that comes off. And it's gone within an hour or so. And that's really what our lives are like. It's just fleeting. You know, in the book of Psalms, there's a one Psalm from Moses that says, teach us to number our days that we can gain a heart of wisdom. <clears throat> and so it's this idea that in the scheme of things, we're just a blip. And that should call us to some sort of action, some sort of reaction to that. To say, okay, this is, this is life. What am I going to do with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bit on that idea of Proverbs 27 as a popular proverb, do not boast about tomorrow for you, for you do not know what a day may bring. Mm-hmm. So it's again, kind of emphasizing this idea that our days are limited. So answering the question of does God exist or who is God is a very important question because that question will have a, a large impact on how you live your life. Yeah. And we'll spend our time figuring out everything else, like how to get to the best car. I remember times like researching how to beat a video game level. You know, just all the research that would go into just like back then I was a big geek on Skyrim or you know, whatever it was. I would spend all this time trying to figure it out. And there was these huge ultimate questions. That I think people just assume, well, yeah, I might not be able to beat this level, but I've got eternity figured out. And it's just a lack of real understanding of what's going on. Yeah, something else I found interesting about a lot of these verses, too, that talk about the how our days are limited is they contrast it with the eternal uh, nature of God. So um, like in Isaiah 40, um, at the end, in verses six through eight, he says, a voice cries out, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely they are, the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So I think there's an interesting contrast in some of these verses between we're just like a mist and our life is a little blip in the grand scheme of the universe, but God is eternal and he is, his truth is eternal. So it kind of nudges you to think about the eternality of God compared to your little life. Yeah. 
and that you know grass and flowers thing yeah, i'm going to be mowing my lawn again just started mowing it for the season and just constantly knocking that grass down you know and that's the humbling place where we should be it's like okay this place is so limited yeah how am i going to take care of that mm-hmm. and this kind of the idea that we need to make a, a decision about if god is real or not uh mm-hmm. c.s lewis has a really famous quote about this idea he says christianity if false is of no importance and if true of infinite importance the only thing it cannot be is moderately important so you want to kind of explain a little yeah. bit more about that quote because yeah, i think there's a lot of people who live their life like well i'm a christian or i'm going to think about christianity and it's one of the things about me you know, I'm a Republican or a Democrat, I'm a vegan, or I do CrossFit, you know, there's all the things that you use to describe yourself. And then Christian is, you know, maybe in the top 10 for a lot of people or, or the, whatever their way of viewing Jesus is. And what Lewis is saying there, and I would agree, is it has to be the thing that defines us. You know, the most important thing about any of us is how we're spending eternity. And it's not just to spending eternity, then it's going to influence how we live today. And so if Jesus isn't true, then disregard him, but then figure out how you're going to treat human rights, you know, how you're going to deal with all the issues that we've inherited from Christianity. But if he is true, then we can't just have him in that mix. He's not just one more thing in the medicine cabinet to reach for when you have a headache. He's, he's your life. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'd agree. I'd say if you're a Christian, it should be the most important thing in your life. And if you're not a Christian, it should still be the most important question that you have to answer about your life. Yeah, and I think a lot of people let themselves off the hook because it's easy to make fun of Christianity. You know, Mm -hmm. people can make a living just poking holes and making fun and making memes, but present a better alternative. You know, that's what I don't see people do because we can deal with those holes. We can deal with the conflicts. You know, I, I get some of that, but I don't get how you could throw all of it away and say, okay, all I'm going to do is nothing. There's this thing called deconstruction where people are deconstructing their faith, but there's no reconstruction on the far end of that. The goal is just to keep deconstructing and pretty soon you've got nothing. And all you're left with is depression, anxiety, you know, nihilism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was going to say a lot of like people who think through this philosophers, when they realize or then they accept the fact that there is no god or they believe that there is no god then it leads to nihilism and just uh, some interesting beliefs about the world and it's hard for them to find a purpose mm-hmm. yeah i'm a kid of the 90s and all the 90s grunge music was pretty much that god is dead nihilism you know so you have you know i hurt myself today to see if i still feel and you know just people there's an old Pearl Jam song. I burned a candle at both ends until it melted my hand and it meant nothing. And just all this nothingness came out of there. And music hasn't gotten too much further, you know, philosophically. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, more rhythmically interesting ways to talk about nothing. And I think one of the really important reasons why we are talking about this topic is because the reality of where people go if they don't believe in God, and that's mm-hmm. hell or eternal damnation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of those things that's hard to talk about. It's one of those, you know, four letter words, even among conservative Christians, because we don't want to 
you know, that old stereotype is we're scaring people into heaven. But there is something healthy about saying, hey, here is the reality. You know, you're learning to drive. When you get into an oncoming traffic, you're going to get hit by a car. That's good teaching to say these are the consequences. And we need to mm-hmm. think through our eternal destiny and look at the consequences. And it's not that as like reformed people that we enjoy talking about hell or we enjoy the idea that people go there. It's something that we don't want to see anyone go to. And that's why we have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a stereotype. I remember as a kid, we were forced to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was actually in my public school primer for like sixth or seventh grade. And it was just the excerpt about Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, talking about how we're all sinners in God's angry hands that were like spiders held by a string over a fireplace or a bonfire. And it's just his grace that isn't flicking us into the flames like we deserve. And they stereotyped as saying, look at the Puritans, how angry and how hateful they were. But as I got older, I read more Edwards, and he was saying that with tears, saying, don't let that happen to you. Here's the alternative. You know, God is angry at sin, and I need to talk about it, but he also loves you, and and here's the remedy. And I think if we stereotype, oh, you're just a Turner burn, you know, fire and brimstone preacher, you know, it's like a doctor who doesn't admit that cancer exists isn't a good doctor. We have to be honest, and then we can move toward those remedies. And we can't soften the reality of what cancer is or what hell is either. We have to preach it exactly as it's revealed in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So to get in kind of more about what hell is like, uh, we're going to read from Mark nine forty-two through 48. And this is Jesus talking. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown in hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Yeah, and that's a tough passage. And I can already hear some people, and I've got some people who I I love dearly who don't believe that there's a hell. And they would say, look at what Jesus is doing. He's using extreme language all over the place where he's saying, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. He obviously doesn't mean for us to do that. So is he not using hyperbole to describe, you know, the worm never dies and the fire never goes out? And I can see a little bit of that argument, but but here's even, even if you take that argument, here's what you still have, is Jesus is still talking about a real place called hell. It might not be worms eating you and flames burning you, but we do know from the breadth of Scripture that there is a judgment that if it's not the presence of fire and of worms, it's clear from scripture that it's the absence of God's love. When Jesus was on the cross, you saw him starting to go through hell for us. He's saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so hell is separation from God. And that might be a physical um, sensation of torment. It might be an emotional torment. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce describes hell as a grumbling place where all you do is complain and complain 
you know, there's nothing that you start off by grumbling and pretty soon you become the grumble because that's all you're consumed by is the bitterness and regret of your life. You know, we don't know Jesus didn't give us a blueprint for hell, but we do know that it's not the presence of God. And if God is our source of life and the source of all joy, then we know that it's worth avoiding. And yeah, I've taken lots of classes and done lots of reading on, on what hell is like. And the, the only thing I've walked away from is I don't want to be there. I don't want anyone I love to be there. You know, I would love for it not to be eternal conscience and torment, but it may well be. And so it's very much worth, you know, pointing people away from it. It might be a complete annihilation of existence. I've heard some people argue that, but even if that is the case, and I'm not sold on that argument, it's still not the presence of God. And so we have so much vested in finding for ourselves and for our loved ones how to be in God's presence in the presence of joy. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to answer some of the objections that people have to the idea of hell too. Yeah. So, so some people might ask the question, why doesn't God just save everyone? And the answer is God created us with free will. And since we are created with free will, we have the ability to accept or reject God. And naturally through original sin, we're bound by sin. So none of us choose to accept God and follow God. And the reality is everyone would be sent to hell if God didn't divinely intervene and save us himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I forget who said it, but the question really isn't why does anyone go to hell? The more accurate question is why does anyone go to heaven? Because none of us deserve it other than Jesus. And so it's almost like Jesus tells the parable about people who were paid to the last, uh, only worked an hour, were paid as much as people who worked the same hour all, all day, and they were filled with bitterness and resentment. You know, and it's saying it's mine to give. And I think that's how a lot of people view it is, well, why would anyone go to hell? When in reality, we're all the people who aren't even scraping by who get to be in heaven. I think if we can lose that sense of entitlement that we're so good at in our country, you know, and probably globally, we could begin to see it as a gift of grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another objection that some people have is, well, why couldn't God just forgive everyone? And uh, the reason why is it would be inconsistent with God's nature, because that wouldn't be the just thing to do. And mm -hmm. in some of your sermons, you've uh, told an example about, I believe it's a neighbor who broke either your window or your car window. Mm -hmm. You kind of want to uh, share that example. And yeah, how it was it just, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a little kid in the neighborhood who was playing, you know, no maliciousness, but he threw a baseball through my car window, you know, and the dad brought the kid over and, you know, how do we make this right? And I've got two options. I can, you know, have the dad pay and then he might make his own kid pay or I can pay it myself. But in any scenario you can think of, unless I'm willing to live with a broken window, somebody has to pay for the window. And if I am willing to pay with the broken window, then I am suffering the consequences. You know, this was in the Midwest. So snow, rain, you know, weather, road noise, all that is now making my life more uncomfortable because of the actions of somebody else. And so with sin, anytime we hurt other people or we violate God's standards, damage is done to the relationship between me and God, between me and the people around me. And either we live with it, we pay it, or we make the other person pay. But there's always a question of payment. 
a lot of people say they, they don't like the judicial sense of God. Mm-hmm. You know, if God's not judicial, then God isn't invested in real life. If God is actually part of the day-to-day life, then he cares when a human is trafficked. He cares when somebody's murdered. He cares about that stuff and then wants that to be paid for. You know, we don't have a powerless God who's seeing human trafficking and saying, wow, I wish I could do something about it. And he Mm -hmm. sees it as evil and wrong. And there's real consequences, eternal consequences. And so that's the way I see it is we have to go to God and ask him, can you pay this? If we refuse his payment, then then he has no option. We we have to pay for it ourselves. You know, I have people who I love and care for who right now don't want to have a relationship with me. And you can tell the whole backstory, but nobody cares. I could invite them to eternity with me, you know, in their favorite place. And they would say no, because their own perception of me has been twisted or there's there's damage in that relationship. You know, I couldn't force them. If I drag them with me, you know, to Maui or to their favorite waterfall or wherever, they would not feel that as a loving sense of my presence. A lot of people in this world have done the same with God where they are actively saying, I don't want you in my life. And for God to show up and say, well, I don't care. I'm going to drag you to heaven to spend eternity with me would be overriding their free will. And it would be unjust of God to say, hey, you've made this choice. You've made this statement. I'm going to, you know, change your mind for you. you know, instead, he, he honors that. You know, he has to work within us so that we, based on his love and his initiation, then we start responding and wanting his presence. But he doesn't just blankly override us and overpower us. Right. Now, in light of the reality of hell and everything that we've talked about so far, what is the good news for people? Well, the good news is that we do have a way for our sins to be paid for. And that's the gospel message. The gospel and the message is, I think Jack Miller out of Philadelphia said it best, is good news is you're worse than you ever thought you were. But the better news is that God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And so we have to kind of put down these false illusions that, you know, I'm, I'm good enough. I'm a good person. And instead say, I am a sinner, but I'm saved by grace that I can't save myself. It doesn't mean I'm a terrible person from human accounting, but compared to God's holy standard. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and other places says, be holy like God is holy. You know, anybody able to do that? I know I can't. So failing that, I say, well, then could Jesus be my holiness? And that's the good news is he's always willing to say yes to that. He's not up in heaven with people putting their hands up saying, would you save me? And then he's picking from people who want to be saved. Well, I'm going to save these people. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the message of Good Friday and Easter is that Jesus paid that bloody cross on that bloody cross for my sin and yours. So that on Easter, his victory becomes my victory.